sola scriptura and sola gratia and sola fide and uh, solus Christus and soli deo gloria, the summation of the gospel in the solas. These are ways in which these five ways express the power, the density, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why when we go back to the Reformation in the 16th century, it is spoken of in that way, rediscovering the gospel. Mind you, the gospel never did disappear completely. Don't want to give that impression. But there was, by and large, especially through Europe, there was this, this uh, eclipse. With notable exceptions, the church stood in the way of every man, every woman, getting a clear hearing of the gospel. That's a tragedy. That is a tragedy. That is comparable to, well, if I may use a weak analogy, if the, let's say that the medical profession suddenly becomes a hindrance to our health and recovery, and you would want to avoid hospitals and doctors. <laughs> Obviously a catastrophe. So the church became that way in the 16th century. Tonight it's sola fide, faith alone, the erosion of the chief article. I'm using that language because of the, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in their Cambridge Declaration drafted in 1996. It is so helpful. I had someone thank me for reading the one last week, and I was um, halting a bit as to whether I should read the one tonight since it's three paragraphs. And I think I'm going to go on and read it, and I want those who hear this uh, online, wherever else, that uh, I want them to hear this. Now, this is that uh, Cambridge Declaration, and then I will also include the affirmation as well as the denial. So follow with me. This sets the stage for what we will do this evening. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. This is the article by which the church stands or falls. By the way, that language comes from Luther, the standing or falling doctrine of justification by faith. Today, this article is often ignored, distorted, or sometimes even denied by leaders, scholars, and pastors who claim to be evangelical. Although fallen human nature has always recoiled from recognizing its need for Christ's imputed righteousness, modernity greatly fuels the fires of this discontent with the biblical gospel. We have allowed this discontent to dictate the nature of our ministry and what it is we are preaching. Many in the church growth movement believe that sociological understanding of those in the pew is as important to the success of the gospel as is the biblical truth which is proclaimed. As a result, theological convictions are frequently divorced from the work of the ministry. The marketing orientation in many churches takes this even further, erasing the distinction between the biblical word and the world, robbing Christ's cross of its offense, and reducing Christian faith to the principles and methods which bring success 
to secular corporations. While the theology of the cross may be believed, these movements are actually emptying it of its meaning. There is no gospel except that of Christ's substitution in our place, whereby God imputed to him our sin and imputed to us his righteousness. Because he bore our judgment, we now walk in his grace as those who are forever pardoned, accepted, and adopted as God's children. There is no basis for our acceptance before God except in Christ's saving work. Not in our patriotism, churchly devotion, or moral decency. The gospel declares that what God has done for us in Christ. It is not about what we can do to reach him. Affirmation. We affirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. We deny that justification rests on any merit to be found in us or upon the grounds of, any, of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us or that an institution claiming to be a church that denies or condemns sola fide can be recognized as a legitimate church. End quote, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, the Cambridge Declaration, 1996. If you had the opportunity, if we could create a moment in, through some of our imagination, whereby you could actually speak to Martin Luther, assuming then you would be able to speak in German, and you encountered him as he was then an unbelieving Augustinian monk. And if you were then to ask him, respectfully so, Dr. Luther, if you were to die this day, would you go immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ? What might you think his answer would be? Well, we're not left in the dark on that. <laughs> uh, that I can tell you by a couple of ways in which his circumstances are described and things that he said himself. I will tell you this, Luther would have stammered. He perhaps may have been insulted. Given his Germanic temperament, he might even have been angry because he was doing everything he could, working his fingers to the bones to try to acquire enough righteousness on his own to be accepted by an angry deity. That's the way he thought of it. Faith plus works equals salvation. And he would know, and how he would articulate it, I couldn't say, but justification would not be finally and definitely affected until the day of judgment. That would be his condition. Unconverted, Augustinian, monk. One way in which uh, one writer has put it this way, Guy Prentice Waters has said, Luther in his pre-conversion state, one's acceptance before God ultimately rested on one's performance. 
what one did or did not do with the grace that God supplied. You get the, you get the feel for this uh, dilemma in which before conversion, Martin Luther. Now let me read something to you from a historian, uh, Stephen Osmond. I want to read to you a short paragraph which uh, does, I think, uh, gives an excellent summary of the theological culture in which Luther lived, grew up, and which, in which he became an Augustinian monk. Here it is. For medieval theologians, the present life remained an anxious pilgrimage. Man lived in unresolved suspense, fearing damnation and hoping for salvation, ever in need of confession and indulgence, discipline and consolation, saintly intercession, and the self-help of good works. Nothing seemed more impossible than this worldly certitude of salvation. Such was self-deception and presumption at best, seditious rejection of God's church at worst. Saving faith was constantly developing faith, fides caritate formata, faith formed by continuous works of love and charity. That's the atmosphere that Luther breathed, intellectually, solically, if you will. I want to proceed along five lines in addressing this sola fide, the first of which is going to, I'm going to pivot around a passage that you're quite familiar with, but let me state it first, and then we'll go to the passage. That faith alone is the only way to enter the narrow gate of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who believes not has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I want us to think on this passage. This is that's John chapter 3 and 14 through 20. It's a dramatic illustration that Jesus uses there to compare what he was speaking. I think this drafts on what has already been said to uh, Nicodemus, who wanted to know what does it mean to be born again, and a teacher of theology who was clueless as to the necessity of the new birth. So Jesus goes to the book of Numbers, and he uses the story of Israel in the wilderness under the chastening of God by probably hundreds or thousands of serpents who were slithering through the population, through Israel's population at that time in the desert. And the bite of these serpents were then leading to death. But God then provided a brazen serpent upon a pole 
And what was asked of Israel to do in order to be healed of the serpent's bite was to, in imminent death, was to look to that brazen serpent. Now, get the analogy. It's very powerful. Get it. First of all, the Israelites illustrate sinners. And their physical death represents the spiritual death that comes from sin. Romans 6, 23. Well, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And I mentioned Romans 3, 23, which we all know. We're going to look at it a little later. But um, for uh, who's, um, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right? The serpent. The serpent of bronze represents, this, the source of healing, represents the Lord Jesus Christ as made sin for us. It's the remedy, interestingly here, the remedy is like the peril, the serpent. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then, thirdly, the healing represents spiritual life. And, very importantly, and directly to what we're doing with sola fide, the looking to the serpent of bronze on the pole, the looking represents the look of faith and trust toward our Lord that brings eternal life. That's all it took. A simple look of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God who offered himself the atoning sacrifice for the sin of sinners that brings spiritual life. Now, Jesus, the master teacher, presents that. And that's the picture then he goes on to speak of in For God So Loved the World. I don't want to move from that to the next line of thought here, still arranging our thoughts with regard. I'm, I'm trying to get at this first, the, the concept, the issue, what is faith? And we're going to look at it a little more later, but I want us to get a handle on it. Saving faith, then, is resting one's full weight of trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. John Stott said it this way, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Let's take another step. Faith is then the assurance and conviction that what God has said is true and that it is to be acted upon. And here is Hebrews 11 and 1, which comes in to supplement what we've seen in, in John 3. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The Westminster Confession, which is, has a lot of good rich and good theology, you may not agree with every point made in the Westminster Confession, but um, I have the Reformation Study Bible, which just has in the back of it, it has various creeds and doctrinal statements in the Westminster Confession, a helpful tool. I was speaking with someone in the parking lot this morning, and they were asking me a question about canonicity. There's no extra charge for this, this sidebar. They were asking a question about canonicity, a good book to get, and I recommended one. But I reminded him that, you know, if you have just a couple of good study Bibles, 
they, the way they're put together the, now, I mean, it's a gift of the 21st century that you, if you take them seriously, if you take a study about, not to agree with everything in all the notes, do I need to say that, but, but still, I mean, the material, by and large, these are great tools to have at your disposal. You don't have to have a big library. And you could take a good study Bible with you on a vacation and give yourself a little Bible education while you're there. All right, with that said, I really got off the main road, but here it is. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 14 on saving faith says this. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. So, faith is a manifestation of the grace of God. We don't create it. We can't produce it on our own willpower. Those who are saved are enabled or empowered to believe to their salvation. Faith is not an accomplishment of the human spirit. It's not a co-op playing with God, like God's helping those who help themselves, that heresy. That thinking, well, God's done his part, now I've got to gin up and do my part. No. With this, <clears throat> I'm going to elaborate on this statement more as we go along, but let me place it before you now. There are three indispensable, indispensable elements in saving faith. <clears throat> now we're going, to take a, we're going to take a beautiful flower. <laughs> you know, when you begin to break it down, I hope it won't lose its beauty and magnificence and simplicity, but there are three factors that are involved. There is knowledge, there is conviction, and there is trust. Knowledge. Well, we're going to look at that here in a moment, that saving faith's got to have content. So there is knowledge, which we'll elaborate on. And, as I would say, just if I may add, there are basic truths that must be believed for salvation. And there is conviction. Conviction, John 16, verses 8 through 11, the Holy Spirit does what? He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. The sin of unbelief. Righteousness, you don't have, and I don't have the righteousness which God requires. And judgment, we face an, an eternal judgment of God without the righteousness of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, like a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom, makes the case for the need of Christ. And therefore, and there is, by the way, obviously an emotional element in this when you're under conviction that there is a gnawing of the conscience with the knowledge that is given in the awareness of it. And uh, there, that brings up certain theological uh, categories we don't have time to pursue, namely, can you resist it? And we sang a song this morning that Beth and I got into a little theological discussion over here with it we, about the word resist. Can you resist the Holy Spirit? Well, yes and no. Ultimately, if you are God's elect and he's moving to bring you to him, you will be brought to him. He will draw you to him. But there may be rejections. There may be resistance up to that point. But back to the main road. And then there is trust, those three uh, elements. Let me move into this issue with regard to saving faith must have content. I like the comment by Charles Ryrie. I think I put this in your notes. He says, to believe in Christ for salvation means to have confidence 
that he can remove the guilt of sin and give eternal life. It means to believe that he can solve the problem of sin, which is what keeps a person out of heaven. 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 is noteworthy because, especially in those first four verses, though it does go on and elaborate further with the importance of eyewitnesses to the resurrection, that you have in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4, you have the content of the faith. What is it? Altogether, we'd say it's man's sinfulness. We have no righteousness of our own. We're guilty before God. We've broken his law. There is Christ's atoning sacrifice and his bodily resurrection. So, we must believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. It's going to come up later at the very end of what we'll do tonight. But he is God. Jesus, in John 8, 24, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. So, I'm, I'm saying, what is that basic truth that we need? Jesus was who he claimed to be. And that's part of this basic knowledge. He was who he said he was to be. We're guilty sinners. Christ took my place on the cross in a substitutionary atoning sacrifice and I am to trust and receive that gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, I came across this, across this illustration. It's not original with me, and it's been around. I've heard other various versions of it, but I came across this illustration, which uh, kind of brings out this knowledge, conviction, trust uh, process, and it's put forward in the form of a parable of a man who's walking along, and suddenly fell off the edge of a cliff. Able to reach out, he was able to reach out and grab a limb jutting out of the rock. He grasped it and hung suspended over the jagged rocks below. An angel appeared. The man pleaded for the angel to save him. The angel responded, Do you believe I can save you? The man said, yes, I believe that you're able to save me. The angel then asked him, do you believe I will save you? Yes, I believe you will save me. Then the angel said, if you believe that I can save you, and if you believe that I will save you, let go. That letting go is faith. That's all I'm illustrating here. I'm not saying angels save us <laughs> spiritually. We turn from those things we are trusting, whether it's baptism or good deeds, our sincerity, our efforts to please God, and we turn from our own sinfulness and transfer our trust to Jesus Christ. I'm going to come at faith in different doors, and I hope we'll get the simplicity and beauty of it as we go along. Secondly, faith alone became eclipsed by the Roman Catholic system of faith plus works. You see, the, the adequacy of Jesus Christ as one's only hope was lost, and the church itself was the culprit. How so? The Roman Catholic theology of the 16th century in the debate over the freedom of the will, by the way, that one has been going on since the first century, freedom of the will issues. 
But the Catholic Church believed that humanity was not totally depraved. Sick, but not dead. Now, there's a huge difference. Therefore, by this theological assumption, belief in the Catholic Church, people could cooperate with God in salvation. Good works, therefore, would be and are indispensable in this quest for eternal life. So, in the Roman Catholic sense of it all, in this analogy, is that if you liken man, the human race, to a man drowning, then God in his grace throws a rope. But whether we grab it is up to us, our own choice, our own disposition, and we must hang on to it. Okay, that, no. <laughs> but that's, that's the way it was viewed. So here we have medieval theology and the problem of sin. Medieval theology saw sin as a problem of being that that needed healing. This took place through the sacraments. So you access the sacraments, turn on the taps. Just think of seven taps. And the priests, by the way, were the ones who were were, uh, mediators then of turning on those taps so that you you could get the grace. Listen to the Council of Trent. Here it is, Council of Trent, that body of uh, Roman Catholic uh, cardinals and priests and, you know, all that were all those who gathered to to create the Counter-Reformation from 1545 to 1563. This is what the Council of Trent says, Session 6, Canon 12. Don't, Don't go to sleep on this. If anyone... If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy, which forgives sin for Christ's sake, or that we are justified by this confidence alone, let him be anathema. Wow. Now, can you appreciate then Luther's problem at the very beginning? Let's go back to the kind of culture in which Luther existed and lived, sought God as an Augustinian monk, he was absolutely obsessed with not overlooking sin. He took it seriously. And therefore, you know, his uh, confession sessions could last up to six hours. And it began to dawn on him is that as he would confess some overt sin, and then he would begin to think about, well, in the very confessing of it, what was his motive for doing so? Was it to demonstrate a pride of conf- pride of humility? And you know, it's just an unending trip into the caverns and the dark places of the heart, which really brought him to the place to see that you can't domesticate sin and just have it where you can manage it like industrially through mechanism, ex opere operato, which was the way the Catholic then viewed the sacraments. All you need, the work is in the working. The work is in the work. Just do it. Just get the merits. The merits that come from access to the sacraments. All right, let's go to the third one. And this is so important. I wanted us to have special time for this one. And this, I'll state it, and then we're going to go to another passage. Faith alone 
is the light that leads the way out of the hopelessness and darkness of salvation by works. Now, I want to set this up. I want to set the table for a minute. I'm going to come back to Paul, you can, or Luther. You see my statement here, Luther's rediscovery of Paul. But I want to go through this passage in Romans 3 and 21 and through 28. Now, this passage is, um, this says it all. Just listen to it. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Well, by the way, while I'm going through this, keep record of the times the word faith is used. Or if you're looking at your Bible, that would be good to have your Bible open to Romans 3, 21 through 28. That keep, let's back up and do it again, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for their, there's verb, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, at that point, what Paul's saying, he's, he's reaching back, looking back to the pagan, the moralist, the Jew. Picture a courtroom. Everybody's coming in in orange suits, handcuffs, prisoners. They're coming before the judge. You're all judged guilty. Now, where was I in the quoting of the past? For all the sin and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift through, through the grace. Help me out here. Being justified as a gift through, when I stop in the middle of the passage, I get off sync. That being justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by, by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. Old Testament times passed over them. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he may be just, might be just, and the justifier, he remains his integrity, his character is just, and the justifier, that which he does for sinners, to justify and the justifier, just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? You proud person, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain, we hold, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. All right, you see the progression. There are five statements that, that move us through this. Here they are. First of all, in Christ, I'm going back up to verse 21. Just go quick step through it again. In Christ, God provided the righteousness which he requires. Now, to us, we say, oh, I know this. But do you know? <laughs> As we're going to see, Luther had his eureka moment. All right, I'll get back to that. Everyone without distinction, verse 23, is in need of this righteousness which God requires. And, verse 24, in Christ, God credits us with the righteousness which he requires. And, verses 25, 26, 
in Christ, the righteousness which God requires has been made public. And verses 27 and 28, there's only one way to receive God's forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. And that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we come back to faith. It is by faith alone that we receive the merits of Christ. Believe. Believe. All right, now let's, go to back, let's get back to, the apostle, uh, to, to Luther. Here he is, this Augustinian monk who just cannot get enough righteousness. He's trying to get all the grace he can. Turn on this tap, turn on that tap, turn on this tap. But guess what? To justify, as he discovers, does not mean to make righteous. It didn't dawn on him in his early days. Or to change a person, or to reckon righteous. To declare righteous, to, to acquire it. Luther could not understand how the righteousness or justice of God could be gospel and could be good news. He just saw that as something to be feared, to which he could not attain. So therefore, here's the light coming on. I took this statement out of why the Reformation still matters, and it says, and it's a quote, Justification is not a process of healing, but a declaration that we have a right, positive standing before God. So Luther then saw, wait a minute, righteousness is a gift. This was his eureka moment by which God declares his righteousness. Now, he describes his experience. And you know, since this is, this is for the purpose of recognizing the Reformation and focusing upon it, I'm going to ask Luther to come into the room and say it. You know how I will? I'm going to read what he said. Now, this is going to take a couple of paragraphs, but I want you to hear Luther. This is not a paraphrase. This is Luther. Here's how he looked at it. Here's what he described his experience. Meanwhile, in that same year, 1519, I had begun interpreting the Psalms once again. I felt confident that I was now more experienced since I had dealt in university courses with St. Paul's letters to the Romans, to the Galatians, and the letter to the Hebrews. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far, there had, there had stood in my way not the cold blood around my heart, but that one word which is in chapter 1. The justice of God is revealed in it. I hated that word. Justice of God? In Ustitia Dei, which by the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically as referring to formal or active justice, as they call it. That justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. But I blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. <laughs> I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. I did not love, no, rather, I hated the just God who punishes sinners. 
in silence. If I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners, lost for all eternity because of original sin, are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel, and through the gospel threaten us with its justice and his wrath? This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. <laughs> The justice of God is revealed in it as it is written. The just person lives by faith. I begin to understand that in this verse, the justice of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift. A gift of God. That is, by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel. And it is a passive justice. That by which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, the just person lives by faith. <laughs> All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. I ran through the scriptures from memory and found that other terms had analogous meanings. For example, the work of God, that is, what God works in us, the power of God by which he makes us powerful, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I exalted this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with which, with as much love as before, I hated it with hate. This phrase of Paul was from me the very gate of paradise. Afterward, I read Augustine's On the Spirit and the Letter, in which I found what I had not dared hope for. I discovered that he, and too, he too interpreted the justice of God in a similar way, <laughs> namely, as that with which God clothes us when he justifies us. Although Augustine had said it imperfectly and did not explain in detail how God imputes justice to us, still, it pleased me that he taught the justice of God by which we are justified. Thank you, Martin Luther. You may go now. All right. That's what he would have said in his vigorous German. There he was. So here he is. Righteousness, then, was that which God requires it's an external righteousness. It's outside of me. And it's a, grace, then, is not a quality that's at work within us. It's God's unmerited favor toward us. You see that. And so, therefore, and I quote here, Luther saw people, uh, saw people as passive in the process of justification. It's receiving. It's receiving. All right, now let's go to four. All right. 
faith alone brings the sinner to the sweet embrace of the whole Christ. Huh. All right, let's consider this. You might want to turn to Romans 5, 1 through 8. I want to show you something in, that, in the passage. While you're turning there, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by grace into this faith, by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about endurance, and endurance, perfect character, and perfect character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God's been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want you to see something in that sequence of thought there in verses 1 through 8. That <clears throat> we are not justified by works, but works will follow. Did you hear that in Romans 5? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he comes and says, we exalt in what? We now have the capacity to exalt Exalted in our tribulations, oh Lord, all these afflictions and difficulties, but oh, this is the occasion, the opportunity. This is the environment I have now by virtue of what you've done in giving me a new nature. And I have an inclination now to please you that therefore I can love you. And this love is not infused in me, as the church was saying, you know, a little bit at a time so that you can get formatted out at the end and still not even be finally justified. No, 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 no. So here it is, Re regeneration and faith then, what happens. Now, I, permit, uh, I think I touched on this last week, so this is another one of those theological categories. This is like driving along for me through the years and seeing historical markers, and I feel like I need to stop and read every one of them. All right, I have to resist the urge here to stop. And Regeneration and faith, theologians debate this. Some say regeneration precedes faith. <clears throat> How can you believe if you do not have the enablement of God. And so, personally, I think that creates, it, that doesn't help us. So therefore, you are believing and you're already saved. Or as a friend of mine put it, you have to be a Christian to become a Christian. <laughs> but that, the exaggeration is much, but I would just think we can be content saying, I think regeneration and faith occur, it's a simultaneous and, I mean, you can't put a stopwatch on this thing. And that there is, in that nanosecond where you're receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, there is that work of regeneration, that new nature that we received. Enabling power of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to believe. Now, I have, here's another category which I can't pursue, but it's something you need to know that comes here. It's an important point. That Luther and Calvin... Uh, both, they complemented one another on the subject of justification and sanctification. And this has, this has created no uh, end, uh, to no end, the discussion. What is the relationship between sanctification and justification? Some of it is needless discussion because if, certainly we are not saying that sanctification is part of our justification. I hope we wouldn't be saying that. Therefore, you can't be sure you're saved 
until you have been sanctified or being sanctified or living a denial, self-denying life. And therefore, at the end, you can find out if you're saved or not. That's the Roman Catholic view. Or at least it's the first cousin. So what's the relationship? Calvin, though, did emphasize something that Luther didn't emphasize, which helps us with this challenge. And that is he emphasized the centrality and the importance of union with Christ. The whole Christ. Embracing Christ. All right, that's all I have time to do on that. I'm, uh, it's just, all right, I need to get to the final step here. We're at five. Let's, let's track it now. Let's pull things together. Faith alone still matters today. Oh, it does. I, you know, we have people in the congregation, in bracket, at least I can speak for the 40-something years in my experience with people coming and going in congregations that, do you know, the biggest, I, I mean, I can't, I haven't conducted any Pew research on this, but I will tell you there are a lot of people who sit in the pews who think that they're working their way to heaven. If you don't know that, you've missed out on the culture and where people have come from and the kinds of church backgrounds and theological cultures that they exist. That you just ask a person, if you died this moment and you went, you, you, where would you go? Or, you know, the, old, the question often asked, if God would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What, have you ever noticed that sometimes people will, they'll flinch. Well, I'm trying to do the best I can. So it's almost like a works pathway is a default mode. It is to the human heart. It has to be overcome by the promise of God. But let's come back to this issue. Faith still, I'm just saying all that to say this, that faith still matters, as it did in the 16th century. Some circumstances obviously were different, but still. Does anything matter more than justification? Absolutely not. This is, this is it, ground zero. Now, I ask this question because this is one that's been, I have any number of books and I've done any, through the years I see this. Is believing easy? We get this easy believism. Have you heard this before? All right, well, I've given a lot of thought to this, believe me. <laughs> now, what, what is it and what is it not? Let me go to Luther for a moment. For Luther, faith was simply taking hold of Christ. It's receiving what Christ has done. And this is a direct quote from Luther. He said, if faith is not without all, even the smallest works, it does not justify. Indeed, it's not even faith. Thank you, Luther, for coming back in. All right. I quote here. Believing in Jesus is not easy. Ryrie, Charles Ryrie says, too much is at stake, and the more that is at stake, the harder it is to believe. Think of what's at stake in believing. Here it is. There is someone that I have not seen. I've not heard his voice, so, you know, okay, allow me here. I have not audibly heard his voice. I've not seen him. Not met him personally. And he lived a life of perfection, no sin. He then gets judged under the law, which he's kept perfectly, but is judged by the penalty of that law, which is death. And therefore he by therefore he takes 
my sin in my place, and I can be forgiven of my guilt and have full pardon. Is that easy to stake ever? And listen, I'm staking eternity on it. <laughs> is there are there stakes any higher than that? I, so I say, believing is not easy <laughs> when you've got the when you you see who Christ is and what He's done. It's not easy. So believing, therefore, and let's understand this aspect of it. Believing is something that must not be uh, diminished by trying to add things to it. What are we trying to do? What do we mean by easy believism? I think it probably what is meant by it is is this, and I, I understand the problem. Is it if if by that you mean all you mean is giving lip service to certain biblical truths about Christ. You know, you can read the statement of faith and you sit there reading a bulletin maybe or a bulletin article or whatever and you're reading and you say, "Yeah, okay, that's yeah, okay, that maybe that's true. Are you saved?" I don't think so. Just by mere cognition. And are you saying that you can, if, 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 if you mean by easy believism, that, listen, I want to tell you something. You can trust Jesus, but you can keep on sleeping around. What a deal. Now, I don't know people who offer the gospel that way. There could be some really perverted, distorted theologians, uh, preachers, teachers, people out there who would imply that. And I've seen versions of it where preaching and testimonies and a culture can, where sin is not taken seriously. Okay, that's another problem, right? The, the cheap grace thing. And believe me, I've given a, a lot of thought to that. I got about three pages of notes that I did last week, and I got to figure out what to do with them uh, on, on that one. And what is it and what is it not? But back to this easy believism. That we must not add things on. Believing is not easy. Oh, Ah, may I say this, that um, when was the last time you wanted to purchase something and you were asked for certain proof? Driver's license, please. Uh, Oh, credit card. Oh, and the killer, your password. (laughs) And believing. But, you know, we do believe in a normal, in a human sense, we do believe uh, hundreds of times a day. I think, I think of a pharmacy and what kind of an investment of confidence that you have to place in the pharmacist when you go to get a medication that if you get the wrong thing, they'll kill you. And do, but do you go through great agony and torture every time you go to the pharmacy? If you do, you got the wrong pharmacy. So... I'm saying all that just to say this, that it's not easy. And we're only talking about money there. So I'm going to have to let that rest, and I want to go to this. I will simply say that justification is not a process of change. Because justification is an act of God, because it's based on the finished work of Christ, we can have assurance, which Luther also desperately wanted, and he found it in justification by faith. Now, I conclude with one other biblical story. This is in Luke 23, 39 through 43. Only recorded in Luke's gospel. You know what it is? 
the story of the three crosses. You have Jesus hanging there in the midst, in the middle of two probably terrorist insurrectionists. I don't think they were your average everyday pickpockets. They were, they were seriously bad people. They were dying for it. And there for six hours, they're on either side of Jesus. And one of the two finally begins to see something. He begins to put things together. And that he then believes that Jesus is who he claimed to be. There's a lot embodied in that. Who he claimed to be. And then Jesus says to him, today you will be. He says, would you, I enter into your kingdom. He says, today you will be with me. Now what is in that simple account? That simple account is that it took that moment, on the, just that split, that nanosecond, to receive the gift of eternal life, Jesus Christ, right there. Receptivity. You know, when I was converted at the age of 14, I can remember it fairly well. And I heard the truth about Christ. I, it was laid out clear. I had, thank you, Lord, for Fred Brown, one of the best evangelists. Oh, he was so clear. It was so clear and so biblically accurate, I think, as I've seen back through the years. Oh, anyway, I heard the gospel. I did, I did. And, you know, I knew I was a sinner. I did not have to be convinced. And I, was, I was under God's judgment. I was under his wrath. I had died. This petrified me. And I knew that there was great chasm between me and God. And so, I, you know, this is where those people who mock and make fun of walking down an aisle and signing a card and doing all that, you know, that's kind of fashionable in certain circles that... You make fun of that or you mock that process. And true, it's been abused. But you know what? I raised my hand and walked down an aisle on the 15th verse of just as I am. <laughs> so I, I can't help me if I have a little modest pushback to those who want to make light of that. God uses various ways. You don't have to use that method. But And I went down and went into that room and that deacon in the church got with me. And I, I remember that one chair and I got down and I knelt. And I knew, and I prayed, oh, dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm under your judgment. I've sinned against you. And I'm guilty of the worst sin, oh, Lord, that I have not trusted in you. And now I come to you, and I trust Jesus Christ to be my first Savior. Forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life. I'm telling you, I walked out that night. It was in March of 1956. I walked out that night, and my head went up. It was a clear March night. And my head went up, and I looked at the sky. I don't know. The night skies have always done things to me with, in relation to God. And I looked up, and I thought, where are we going, Lord? <laughs> there was that immediate, it's that immediate desire, Lord, where, is, where do you want to take me? I don't know. Oh, no, was there a lot of work to be done? 
I didn't know as well then as I do now. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. But just that, I'll put it in this statement. Faith that acquires add-ons to the the clarity of faith alone begins to diminish. Faith alone does not need much more muscle. It already possesses the strength and beauty of simple receptivity, like a bird with its mouth open. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. Rejoice in it.